Look, there's a lot of galleries that are like, holy shit, we're like a white gallery that shows almost all men and all white males. Gee, we've never even thought about the rest of the world. It's bad for business. So that's the cynical, but also realistic side of this. But you know what? If business is the reason that people are changing, I mean, it's better than the alternative. This is Hope and Dread. I'm Charlotte Burns. And I'm Alan Schwartzman. This is a program about the tectonic shifts in power in art. We want to hear from people who are making change and people who are resisting change. Today's show is all about the art market, that outsized beast that's the king of the art jungle. The market is full of contradictions, defined both by the cold language of commodities trading and also by intimate networks of closely kept relationships. What we talk about as monolithic, the market, is in fact a series of mini-markets, each of which has their own rhythm. It can all be a bit difficult to navigate. So join us today as we talk to a dealer, an artist, collectors, and an astrologer. We'll trace the contours of an industry defined by deal-making, where power resides in the hands of the few, but affects the lives of the many. Let's open the bidding at 10, 11. Maclow Art Collection brings in $676 million at New York A. The competition to put a red sticker on the masterpiece in has been sold was more heated than ever. 15 million Hong Kong. The final bid, David, 69 million dollars. So few out there online, thank you. The consumption of contemporary art has become a global phenomenon, albeit a relatively recent one. The art market used to focus on brown furniture and old masters, but over the past few decades has morphed into a different animal altogether. Now it's changing even more. There's the market for modern and post-war art, which functions as it always has, although it has gotten focused much more on top quality works by the most significant name brand artists. And then there's the contemporary market, which is changing that much more rapidly than ever before. In fact, it's challenging the values of that other market. We're in a moment of massive shift. I believe that art is at the beginning of a very large transformation that is going to change how value gets determined. We're going to go into much more detail in the next episode on the very contemporary art market in a one-on-one -on -one conversation between Alan and I. But for those less familiar with the art market, today's episode asks who wields the power? Who are the key players on the stage? Dealers say it's the artists, artists say it's the collectors, collectors say it's the dealers, and so on. We asked Tim Blum, co-founder of Blum & Poe Gallery, which was founded in Los Angeles 28 years ago and now has bases in Los Angeles, New York, and Tokyo. The artist has the control, and artists and their studios should be more and more directing their lives, careers, and activities with the advice of their select group of global dealers. That is the best way for the artist. And I think if you always follow the artist and are bluntly honest about how the system works, it's the best way. Indeed, important artists have a lot of power, or so says the mega-dealer Larry Gagosian. In a recent interview with the Financial Times, he said the shift in power was not a good thing, recalling a story about the dealer Paul Rosenberg telling artist Pablo Picasso that his paintings weren't good enough for his first exhibition in New York. Picasso went on to paint an entirely new body of work. 
Gagosian marveled, can you imagine a dealer rejecting a show of Picasso's? It just shows you the change now. You walk into an artist's studio, maybe it's really not good work, and it's, oh, I love what you're doing. Even the most powerful dealers in the world can lose an artist simply by offering some critical advice. So is it plain sailing for artists? Well, power is more complicated than that. Here's artist Issy Wood on the realities of being a market darling and finding out collectors are flipping your work at auction. It can become a full-time job trying to bury your head around this stuff. And so very occasionally I'll just, I'll run at the problem and really force myself to think about how it feels to have work at auction. One came up recently and all I, you know, all I see is who I'm trying to emulate and the struggles and how broke I was because the paint is so shitty and to see that monetized five years after the fact is feels really grotesque. The heat in the market brings out all kinds of vile behavior. In her book, But Who's Counting? A collection of blog posts between 2019 and 2020, Issy Wood personifies the avaricious collectors as Marlboro men riding across the plains of the art market looking for prey. Here's Issy reading from her book. Post number 33, strong and tough. Today I learned there are a few more frustrating combinations than maleness plus knowledge of the art market plus boredom. Now our world has become a kind of buffering desert screensaver. The cowboys are riding out with their big lassoes and how different are those really from nooses? Hoping to catch something promising for their dusty ranches and they're chewing on those cocktail sticks you sometimes see cowboys chewing on in lieu of a Marlboro. Issy writes that the days of an artist remaining oblivious to their output as a monetizable commodity are long gone. For her, it's important to try to keep the demands of the market at bay and maintain her focus on the work in the studio. Finishing a painting and quantifying it feel mutually exclusive. I'm old-fashioned that way. Sure, I could make it rain in my mind when something sells, but I'd need a shower soon after. I could eschew my dealers and pedal work from crappy JPEGs to whichever cowboy seems most fatherly and wear low-cut Margiela for some ID magazine, London female artist to watch spread. But I'm already being watched and I can feel it even in a fleece. I'm anxious not to gender all the collectors and advisors and dealers and lapsed auctioneers who give me grief, but the ones rearing their head this COVID season are, whichever way you slice it, men. Much of the attention comes in the guise of support. I guess the flavor of hassle I keep seeing is a mix of salvation. I'm plucking you from obscurity. Pseudo-education. Listen, here's how things work. Sexualization. Being attractive in this business doesn't hurt. Backhanded compliment. Nobody will ever have the passion for your paintings that I have. And gaslighting. Don't flatter yourself into thinking you're the only good artist out there. Of course, this wouldn't happen without a motive, and I'm beginning to realize it goes beyond mere access to a sales PDF, though buying a painting is the crux of it. Being denied one through the official channels is why the lasso comes out. Nope, they want to be able to say in 5, 10, 20 years that I would be nowhere without them, that they were instrumental in shoehorning my life's work into the canon, that they were restrained enough to see past whatever sexual attraction cropped up in our early WhatsApp messages to my real artistic talent. In short, they were able to see the wood for the trees. Being in demand can be flattering, but can also lie one step away from being seriously harassed. 
I make the mistake of entertaining aggressive, abusive, agenda-soaked flattery every time it has the mouthfeel of love. Because if the paintings are an extension of my psyche, surely the cowboys want me. Perhaps I'm the outlier to the whole commodity racket that just this once they're buying with their hearts. I begin to fill the gaps missing in my art market fluency with magical thinking, not realize I'm guilty of the very entitlement to exception I despise in these characters, and that this deep-pocketed male quasi-mentor, wide-eyed female naive dynamic is as old as water. So now it takes one of the cowboys, say, secretly bribing existing collectors for a painting, or threatening me with doom via text, or attempting to poison me against my collaborators, or yelling at me over 12 voicemails, or asking me for naked photos whilst assuring me they're all business, or matching with me on a dating app and getting to know me before asking whether work is available for me to snap out of it. V texted me the other day, I'm getting so many inquiries for your work even during a pandemic. It's crazy. At the time I was flattered, now I'm wondering whether it's because the work is good or because people are bored and my stock is up. I hope both can be true at the same time, because if not, the next 60 years are going to break my phone. Issy is one of the most compelling artists who have merged in her generation, but the contemporary art market has such volatility and such a voracious appetite for both new talents and for escalating prices at auction privately and also in the primary market that uh, that kind of talent is not really a guarantee of continued rising success anymore. Absolutely. And interviewing Issy really made me understand how vulnerable even the most successful artists are. In her reading, Issy referred to V. That's Vanessa Carlos, Issy's long-standing gallerist, who she talked about in our interview. I can never say for sure, but it feels like the the combination of Vanessa being a female dealer and my being a female artist, maybe telling men who have never really been told no, no, that's what you get. I wish it wasn't what you get, but maybe that's what you get. This brings us to the power of the dealers. The relationship an artist has with their art dealer is crucial. In the best of situations, it's far more than a transactional relationship. It is as much a psychological and a parental one. There are people who believe that the primary market, which is the market in which artists are represented and their work is introduced, is, is a dying phenomenon. Um, there are many who, who, who would love to kill it off. But those intimate relationships that are really one-on-one -on -one and that are rooted in, in supporting an artist in so many ways, they cannot be replaced with a market. I could not do it without Vanessa's help. And though she, she would never stand against my will in, in the way of my saying yes to anything. She will help me unpick a little of why I'm maybe so eager to say yes. And it's usually when we get to the bottom of it, it's my own sort of deep set panic about this being the final opportunity that I ever get. And do I not want to make hay while the sun shines, blah, blah, blah. And the more I say no and the more the more I realize that my no is lands in an okay way and that my being and my value as a person don't crumble as a result, then the more confident I feel in saying no the next time. And so it's this strength training. <laughs> the power to say no is sometimes all I have and I wish it wasn't all I have. 
a lot of the results of those no's are the aforementioned abusive phone calls and unsolicited education opportunities that people who sort of try to be my slightly creepy gurus offer. I guess being told no hurts, and I try to keep that in mind, but also not let it sway my boundaries just because I don't want to hurt some Christie's chairman's feelings. The art market Issy is describing is one that most people outside it don't recognize. In fact, many artists don't recognize. It can be a brutal business, cutthroat, competitive, full of personalities, egos, and money, and people who wish you to not succeed. Done properly, dealers will safeguard artists away from some of that drama because for them, it's a long-term commitment and a long-term investment. Here's Tim Blum. Our whole credo has been that the artist is in charge, and we've always tried to let them know that. Many dealers would do the, quite the opposite, right? They try to make them feel utterly tied to, inextricably linked to the gallery and would otherwise suffer greatly if they didn't listen to every single thing that we said. The artist is the boss, and they should know that. That's why when there's a consolidation of an artist with one gallery, I don't care how many spaces they have or how many they're opening, I find this to be one of the worst uh, things that an artist can do is to go all in with one firm. You know, I think it's far better and far more interesting to have a more diverse group of global dealers and galleries that uh, can really be more um, bespoke, you know, hands-on and really be the, uh, at the top of it in their localized community, whether that's London or Berlin or Tokyo or what have you. Commonly, most galleries' programs are underwritten by one or two very successful artists whose markets essentially buoy the rest. It can be tempting for the dealer to pressure those artists to produce more. Supply is the issue in the current market, not demand. Knowing which works to put out into the world and which to hold back can be the difference between great confusion and great clarity about an artist's significance. And sometimes it's better to just sit on your hands for a while. Strategy is key. Here's Issy Wood again. I make a ton of work, and if anything, Vanessa says, please make less, regardless of how much is in the studio. A tiny fragment will make it into the world, fiscally, or even visually. So it, it's sort of baked into our process of working together where there are a hundred paintings and I get to pick first which ones that I want to keep, which is something I'm learning the value of and which feels more possible now that I have slightly more financial stability and she'll only ever bring into the world what I'm comfortable with. And if anything, I'll want to put more in the world than she wants to. And she was the first gallery I ever worked with. And I hear stories, but I don't know what it's like to work with a different kind of dealer. I don't know what it's like to have money kept from me. I don't know what it's like to be pressured into making enough money to keep a whole gallery afloat. Issy joined the gallery straight out of art school. It's the old model of art dealing in which artists and their galleries grow up together. Which is, unfortunately, a model that is mostly dead. 
Here's the collector and philanthropist Larry Marks, who's on the board of directors at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles. It's got to be brutal as an artist because the power of the galleries has become really disproportionate, I think, to, to the role they play in, in the, the whole ecosystem of the art world. Uh, sorry to all my gallerist friends, but I often feel like uh, the gallerists are as much influencing the output of the artists, uh, not only in terms of uh, content, but size, everything. And I'd much rather let the artists develop on their own than at the behest of uh, some behemoth gallery with locations all over the world. But I, I do feel that uh, artists have lost power in the whole thing, unless you are a, a David Hammonds and can kind of call the shots. But for younger artists uh, in particular, they're really at the mercy of a lot of these galleries, in my opinion. Gatekeeping can go two ways. A dealer holding back access to their artists to stave off predatory behavior can also be a dealer controlling the market in ways that are frustrating for buyers. Frankly, most other luxury markets don't operate in this way. Here's the writer, editor, and art collector, Roxanne Gay. Well, galleries can be very exclusionary, and they make strange assumptions about who does and who does not have the ability to buy the works they have. and. I have experienced quite a lot of terrible galleries. Well, not terrible per se, indifferent. And I suppose that's just an aesthetic that they curate, that they're into that. But I find that to be ridiculous. I don't need any sort of special treatment, but like when I walk into a gallery and I see them talking animatedly with a white client, and then that person leaves the gallery and they go to their little office and do something and I'm just wandering around, you know, that sort of sends a message that I'm not a serious buyer. And, well, okay, I'm not a serious buyer with you. I will take my serious buying somewhere else because, quite frankly, there are many galleries in the world. A good art dealer is a bit like a good gravedigger. They know where the bodies are buried and they're keeping the secrets close to their chest. But this handshake society way of doing business doesn't always chime in an internet age where buyers value ease of transaction and transparency. You'd assume the buyer has the power, but usually not. It's so hard to get information sometimes about just what art costs and if it's available. And they're like, can we jump on the phone? It's like, just send me a PDF with information about the provenance and the the cost of the art, the dimensions, you know, the condition. Like, that's all I need to know. If I would like more information, then I'll let you know. But, like, it's it's always this weird, weird game. And I just find it frustrating. I was recently told by one gallerist that I was interested in one artist and an incredible artist and I would very much like to acquire a piece of this person's work. And the gallery told me that they would like to develop a relationship with me because there's a lot of demand for this artist's work and that that relationship would be improved if I were to buy some work by some of their other artists. And so here is a PDF of the offerings of the other artists who I'm sure were lovely, the work was fine, but none of it was what I wanted. I knew what I wanted. And it was so disheartening that you have to pay to play. Like you have to buy some art you don't want to get to the art you do. 
it's just what kind of business I mean it's just corrupt it's just so corrupt so Roxanne's saying it's really difficult to get a price for a work of art. Why can't people just send it? And of course, during COVID, there have been moves to create more transparency. There are more prices available online at art fairs and on gallery websites. But price in the art market isn't a fixed thing, is it, Alan? Well, it's more fixed in the primary market than in the secondary market. But more importantly, price is a tool and a weapon. It's a way that galleries can monitor interest, who's interested in what. And it also is a way to, uh, uh, to, to it, it's also a way to build a sense of theater of desire about a work. It, it, this is a power that's often used in a kind of horrible exclusionary way to most people who experience it early on. And it seems entirely unnecessary but this is how some people choose to function. Some places are very transparent, some are, are very opaque. It's also that, you know, the flip side of that is if you're a dealer and you have an artist who's really in demand, there's only a finite amount of work you can sell. So say an artist makes, you know, 15 great paintings a year, you have a waiting list of 45 people. You, you know that you want some to go to museums because the museums will help establish the artist's longer term career. Do you sell to the big private philanthropist who's got their own institution? Do you sell to the collector who's going to donate that work to MoMA? Or do you sell to someone who's just walked through the door and likes the painting? And they're the decisions that the dealer has to make when they're thinking about where to place the work. One rarely sells to the person who just walks in the door, regardless of the experience of the dealer or the place within the market in which they function. A crucial part of a dealer's job is to place work well. To, in order to build a market, you have to have confidence, belief, demand, so many immeasurable qualities that the dealer who does the best job of placing work, and that can mean many different things, uh, is more likely to create a more lasting, stable, and healthily growing market rather than one who is looking at each transaction as a transaction. More often than not, when young artists emerge, they even, with all the best of intentions, work is often placed at a very inexpensive price level. And for an artist for whom demand grows and, and values rise quickly, it's very hard to, if you pay $4,000 for something, to not think about $500,000 if something's reached that level, if you're somebody for whom that's a deposit on an apartment that you wouldn't have otherwise. So there are so many ways in which the purity of the faith in the work and the belief in the artist and in the desire for living with great things can be affected by a, ver a voracious and rapidly growing art market. This is the whole thing of art as an asset class. If you're buying something because you want to live with it, that's a very different proposition if the thing that you love on your wall just meant that you can buy your, own, your first home. And the pressure to sell that, um, to make that quick buck, is, of course, very tempting. And there's nothing wrong with it. If you're a buyer, it's yours. You own it. Why not? If you're the artist, there's a problem with that because you're not – those high prices aren't necessarily helping you. They're not helping your 
career necessarily, especially if they're happening on the secondary market and the primary prices are still at a lower level. And that's something that isn't always clear to people outside the market. You know, they watch a price fly at auction and they think, well, this artist must be making bank now. But it's not always the case, is it? Well, it, it, it's it, it's a more complex story than most dealers w w would necessarily admit to. No dealer likes to lose control uh, of the material that they're selling. Many artists can begin to lose confidence in their dealer if a lot of material comes back in the secondary market at auction. So a best dealer tries to control that flow. And most collectors who are active in the contemporary market play by the unwritten rule that if you want to sell something, you give preference first to the dealer who sold it to you. Oftentimes, this means selling something for far less than it might bring at auction. But for those who go to auction a little too frequently, access can be cut off very rapidly. And so this could be seen in exclusionary ways, but it can also be seen very much as a necessary strategy in order to build a successful, thriving, and lasting market. At the same time, it requires a runaway price at auction for a whole new generation of demand to rise up. So it's a double-edged sword. Everybody, uh, mo most dealers and artists hate auction, but at the same time, the market thrives on some limited activity at auction that can set records that therefore draw attention to an artist by a wider group of collectors. And of course, if you ask dealers, they'll say um, they prioritize institutional buyers. Um, the idea of works going to museums is, is, is where people want things to go. It has become an increasing phenomenon that we see an artist for whom there is great demand uh, where the exhibition will be presented as for museum access only, or where a dealer will say, we're taking interest, but we're prioritizing museums. Sometimes th this this is overused, and it um, and it's not linked to the demand within institutions, and 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 that gap can get quite annoying, frankly, for some dealers. But the uh, the side of it that's far more significant to notice is that museums have been on such a rapid rise in collecting over the last several decades that now they're starting to step back and they're realizing the vast majority of the material that they own will rarely, if ever, make it to the wall for the viewer. And they become significant costs in terms of storage, conservation, maintaining collections. And so many museums are starting to get far more selective about what it is that they will accept. And it also means that if you're a patron and you're giving things to museums, maybe you start to think a little more strategically about where you give based in part on where you believe that the work will actually be seen by a public. Well, the market and the museums are so closely intertwined as we've already heard a little bit in this series. And in some obvious ways that you might expect, the pressure of the markets upon the museum, the rising cost of buying art, and storing it and all of those financial decisions. But there's also a separate form of pressure upon the museums. For museum workers, beleaguered for a myriad of reasons, as you may have heard in four earlier episodes of this series, 
the commercial sector can look attractive. We're talking about a brain drain from museums. Bigger paychecks, less paperwork. What's not to love? Here's Tim Blum. That's why you see a lot of, you had seen a lot of migration from the institutional museum world to this commercial gallery world. There's less bureaucracy. There's like three people deciding about doing a show. The budget is not a problem. It's well-funded. So you had an exodus from you know, museums to commercial galleries because many of the commercial galleries are able to do very high-level institutional quality shows in a very quick, efficient way. How serious is the shift? The exodus from the institution to the commercial is profound. I think the museum world is, um, wow, it's a, it's a mess. It's a mess. And there's a uh, dearth of great talent that is at a certain level. I think there's great talent at a younger level coming up, but it's going to take a generation to build it up again. And the trick is, how do they keep them? Meanwhile, the sums of money being traded on works of art can put pressure on traditional philanthropy as well. Curators have typically leaned on private collectors to help acquire challenging or important or expensive works that the museum might otherwise not be able to afford. Here's a collector and philanthropist, Pam Kramlik, who's the co-founder of the Kramlik Collection, president of the Kramlik Art Foundation, and the president of the New Art Trust. She's explaining here how the system works and the challenges it faces. That's where I think the, the collectors are really important and the curators and the advice that they give all of us who are collecting because that's how we have those works for the museum to uh, be able to, to show to the public in context. I mean, that's what's really important. I think that's where we as philanthropists come into it. I think the confusion today is that we have an auction market that has put such prices and such monetary value to these works of art that we've sort of lost the real reason for them. I mean, all of a sudden, we're not giving them to the institutions because they're too valuable in our own collections. I'm not so sure that is productive either. And, you know, then we've got the, the government weighing in on whether they make it more advantageous to do that or not. And so I think we're, we're dealing with a lot of stresses and strains in the world out there that are making the whole art platform very difficult to navigate at this point. The collection that Pam has put together over the last several decades is one of the most significant that has been formed in the post-war period, and that's because she has focused on mediums that ordinarily have not had much commercial viability, but that have been very significant within the development of art from the mid-60s to the present, and that's focusing on video, film, and other media. So if she had not committed her collecting life to putting together the New Art Trust and the Kramlik Collection, this simply would not exist in any museum. The fact that the collection is gifted to three different institutions and collection sharing is much more viable when it comes to um, digital works than to, let's say, paintings that could uh, be seriously affected by a lot of travel. Um, that, that, then she's really leveraged this collection in a most effective way for institutions. The problem with the market dictating taste is that the market tends to favor the less risky and potentially less interesting art. The other thing that the New Art Trust has done is really pioneer institutional thinking about conservation and safeguarding of best practices around new media works that tend to be more frail. How do you keep them? How do you maintain them? 
So that's a private collector who's helped spearhead institutional um, sort of longevity for these works. And you talk about the, the, the risk of things. And I will never forget a curator running around um, at an Armory Art Fair years ago. And I said, you know, what do you think of the fair? And they said, there's a lot of painting. And I said, yeah, and what do you think of that? They said, well, you know, we always call it cash and carry art. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, speaking to that point about risk taking and what the market sees. Here's Kathy Holbright, the executive director of the Robert Rauschenberg Foundation. The market is inherently a conservative force. I mean, people don't go into the market to lose money. They go into the market to make killings. And I think that has not really given the art world a very secure foundation for improvisation or collaboration or not knowing all the values that I think are important. It's, it's prized again on certainty, just like the educational system is. So why is that? And the only answer I have is that somehow capitalism really has failed us. I'm a capitalist. I believe in capitalism as opposed to any other system of governance, but I don't cherish the hyper-capitalism we're living with now, where the inequities are, you know, like the Grand Canyon. You can't even see to the other side. It's so vast. And I think the art world perpetuates that canyon. It's been a period of reckoning in the art world. Financial value has historically been overwhelmingly ascribed to work by white male artists. But since the worldwide protest during the pandemic after the murder of George Floyd, an unarmed black man by police, many galleries were quick to say they wanted to better diversify their programs. How much of this, in the end, was lip service? Here's Tim Blum again. It's like, look, there's a lot of galleries that are like, oh my God, their self-reflection is on a very surface level. It's not like going deeply into the self. It's more like, holy shit. We're like a white gallery that shows almost all men and all white males. And gee, we've never even thought about the rest of the world, Asia or otherwise. We got to fucking figure this out or people are going to like disparage us and it's bad for business. So that's the cynical, but also realistic side of this. But you know what? That's okay too. If, it, if that's what it takes, it's like that's where capitalism and business it actually is oddly uh, efficient on some level. It's a tectonic shift, for sure. Either I've heard face-to-face -face or, or anecdotally collectors who are saying, literally like, listen, we're not buying any more white art. We're buying only, you know, in some cases, black American art, black female American art, and or some sort of permutation within that. And that's, you know, full on, white trustees of major museums. Do you think it's a trend or is it a shift? Well, that gets into dicey territory. Um, it's a shift and a trend. Okay, so the trend is almost with the shift and the awareness and attention that's being placed on all this work, much of which is tremendous and, and, um, and great art, and much of which is not. You know, markets are always so, so smart. <laughs> They're smart on one level because they gravitate 
to that which is um, trending. And so, of course, the market has shifted dramatically. And I'm not one to judge whether that's a good or bad thing. It doesn't matter what kind of art we're all working with. There's trends that come and go. Always going to be some people that are going to get sucked in and, and spat out. Um, that's just always the case. It doesn't matter when or where or how or why. But anyway, if business is the reason that people are changing, I mean, it's better than the alternative. If you're thinking, really, a caring, sharing, but still profit-loving future for galleries, you'd be surprisingly close to the bullseye. During the pandemic, a few galleries worked together to share information and shake the fog from their collective heads. Some of that collegiate vibe has stuck. Former competitors clubbing together? Here's Tim Blum on how a new gallery initiative came to pass. So that initial part was getting it, setting up a system to help make everybody survive. The family, the business, the staff. I was joining and starting numerous groups. The Gallery Association of Los Angeles was founded during COVID. I'm the president of that. I'm in another group called the International Gallery Alliance, which is a global group. Started mostly in London, in fact. It's more like a union for global galleries. The new International Galleries Alliance, or IGA, is a non-profit collective of art dealers who've united to combat together the various challenges they're facing. From bandying together to talk about shipping costs, to sharing information on more eco-friendly practices. From thinking about how to do business better in a digital age, to discussing NFTs. The goals are myriad, but they're collegiate. Unusually for the art world, the organisation is one of horizontal leadership. There are more than 150 members around the world, each of whom pays the same annual fee, which entitles them to the same vote and the same voice. Frankly, from my view, it was about helping these, all these young dealers that don't have the platform that we do. Now, importantly, this is like a union vibes. My whole trip was always that the idea of collaboration, cooperation, you know, is the path forward for a global world and also for for the art world it's about creating a system in which people can work you know work together to push and succeed together it's sort of fanciful on some level but the feeling is quite positive i mean we'll see what happens come over the next year or two this kind of cooperation amongst galleries is a reaction to the consolidation of power elsewhere by the mega galleries, the auction houses and the art fairs. Other recent examples include Gavin Brown closing his gallery to become a partner at Barbara Gladstone in 2020, or the formation of LGDR in 2021, which was a joint effort by four dealers, Dominique Levy, Brett Gorvey, Amalia Diane and Jeannie Greenberg or the joint venture by the mega-dealers Acavella, Gagosian and Pace, which was designed to compete with the auction houses for estates. But none of this is quite as new as it might seem. I spoke to the journalist Melanie Gerlis about this idea of collaboration and who holds the power in the art industry. Her new book, The Art Fair Story, A Roller Coaster Ride, was published in the US last week. Collaboration isn't that new. It's a word we use a lot at the moment. It's a great post-pandemic buzzword. But when art fairs started in their in their, what I would call their modern form um, in the late 1960s in, in Cologne, the point was to collaborate. The point was that galleries, dealers didn't have enough heft on their own. They needed somehow to challenge the auction houses that were getting bigger and more international and coming together all in one place 
making the compromises you have to make when you collaborate was very much part of that story. As the rest of the world became more globalized and more wealthy, to be honest, the fairs themselves became bigger and more expensive to do and more important, more validating within the art world. So a gallery could say, I am a freeze gallery or I am an art Basel gallery, and that would give them extra power uh, over their over their clients. And as the fairs got bigger, they could charge more. And suddenly it became really quite difficult for galleries to justify the cost of doing a fair, being out of their own spaces, hosting dinners. I mean, the huge jamboree now around some of these mega, mega art fairs. It's a completely different beast to, you know, the 18 galleries that sat in Cologne in 1968. Art Basel launching the Miami Fair in 2002 was really the first time that an art fair brand went international. But what was happening in the outside world is this growth of the experience economy, people wanting to have a bit more fun. This is boom, boom, boom time, the, the, the turn of the millennium. The next year you get Freeze, which absolutely benefited from London becoming a banking capital in its own right. And it was very much the financial class and the aspirational class that throughout time, actually, has, in terms of the buyers of fairs, and this is another problem, I think, for art fairs now, is an erosion of, of these middle classes. But you've got younger people making more money and wanting to spend it on, on beautiful things. COVID obviously put a, put a stop to it, but things were already a little wobbly. You know, we had a 2008 crash, and I don't think the art market fully recovered, or, or it's trajectory of growth, I think, stopped then. We've had ups and downs within it. You've had this extraordinary inequality within it. So you're getting the rich getting richer. But that is the opposite of of an aspirational middle class. And I think that's where some of the tensions will lie in the future. It's also tied as well, you know, if you think about the growth of all of those fairs across Asia, across the kind of brick economies, and all of those buyers coming in, that is, like you said, tied to this phase of a kind of neoliberal globalist worldview that the art world very much benefited from in terms of its expansion. We're in a phase now of increasing nationalism. Do you think that's going to make it harder for art fairs and galleries? There is definitely a move towards being more national. There's definitely a suspicion of global partnerships and and huge problems in the wider world. You will see fairs become more national. And listen, if your fair is in the middle of Switzerland, that's not a bad place to be. National kind of includes Germany and, you know, the Southern Rhine area and all these phenomenally wealthy places. So national isn't necessarily a dirty word for art. And coupled with the environmental issues of us all flying around the world all the time, I think you will see visitors certainly not going to as many fairs. But this year and the end of last year seem to suggest otherwise. Since September last year, all I seem to have done is jump on aeroplanes to go to art fairs and see lots of people who have jumped on aeroplanes to go to art fairs. But this may be a dead cat bounce. We may all just be so relieved that, you know, our two years of purda are over and everything, we can have fun again. I, I do wonder if we will, the pendulum will swing again. Who has the power? Is it the fairs? Is it the dealers? Is it the auction houses? Is it the artists, the collectors? Who in the art market wields the power? 
ultimately the artists need to make the art and the collectors need to buy it. So that's where the power lies. It's hidden, it's overtaken, but those are the people with the power. Join us next episode for more on the market. First, change is afoot. It's in the stars. Here's professional astrologer Phyllis Mitz. There's a leap going on, not only in the inventiveness, but in human beings valuing art itself. And the interesting part of that is what people will be willing to pay for art. Because there's another planet in the solar system, Uranus, that has to do with awakening and shakeups and technology. And interestingly, it's in the sign of currency and literal money, which means that, you know, I think by the time it leaves in a few years, by, you know, by 2025, I can't even imagine currency being in the state that it is now. You know, for us to go to our purses or our wallets and get out some dollars, I can't imagine that's going to be so. Interestingly, Taurus also has to do with value. So in the past, there were certain forms of art that were valued, certain artists that made a lot of money. And Uranus is about to shake that whole thing up. Like, what kind of art do we value? What are we willing to pay? How do we pay for art? You know, what are we going to find beautiful is, you know, that's a, that's a huge question coming up because we are evolving like mad and what we might want to see reflected to us artistically can change dramatically within the next four years. And because Uranus has to do with shocking events that happen with the value of art and the traditionally highly valued art pieces themselves. Because Taurus has to do with, you know, the, the luxury items. Let's call some art a luxury item, right? And if there is a, a planet of radical change running through that, that it's suggesting that the, the status, the nature, the currency, the commerce of what's considered high or expensive or luxury, the luxury world of art, there's something that's going to radically change there. And I think that could happen by the end of 2022, you know, and then reverberate, of course, through 2025. But something is up there. Something is trying to break through. Tune in to Hope and Dread every second Wednesday and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Follow us on social media for related show content and tell us what you think at artand underscore media. Hope and Dread is brought to you by Art And, the new editorial platform created by Schwartzman And. The executive producer is Alan Schwartzman, who co-hosts the show together with me, Charlotte Burns of Studio Burns, which produces the series. Robert Bound is our associate editor. Holly Fisher mixed and edited the sound. Additional research and support has been provided by Julia Hernandez and Ali Nemirov, and theme music by the inimitable Philip Glass. Oh, oh, oh.